What do you call that noise? What do you call that noise? 45 years ago, on the 20th of January 1978, XTC released White Music, their debut album. From radios in motion to neon shuffle, it pulsated with warped pop music that matched the frenetic punk spirit of the time. Hello, I'm Mark Fisher, and in this month's episode of What Do You Call That Noise? The XTC Podcast, we've got the first of a two-part conversation with some of the fans, journalists, and photographers who were there to witness XTC as they exploded onto the scene. Before we launch into that, there's a new feature for 2023. Regular listeners will remember that in the first half of last year, we had a monthly slot in which the musicians among you took turns to write a song in response to something that had been said on the podcast. A conversation about playgrounds and XTC songs inspired Ed Stainsby to write Climbing Frame. An analysis of No Thugs in Our House gave David White the idea to write Still Got It. I let my toffee nose in the name of the podcast led Gary Perkins to write What Do You Call That Noise? The neighbours rang to say they've seen enough I've got my music loud. Further discussion of English settlement prompted Chris Badley to write Round and Around. And round and round it goes, reaping what we sow. And round and round it goes, cos that's all we know. And round and round it goes, going with the flow. And round and round it goes, and round and round it goes. Craig Stevens tried his hands at a spot of Andy Partridge-style punning by turning We Are Not Alone, a remark in an early issue of Limelight, the XTC fanzine, into Not Alone. And then Gary O'Donnell rounded off the series with Encyclopedia, a tribute to XTC fan-led publications and podcasts. So that was then. Now we're launching a series in which listeners pay tribute to XTC themselves. If you're a musician and you've written something inspired by XTC in some way, I'd love to hear from you. Your music doesn't necessarily have to sound like XTC, although it could do, but perhaps it has some lyrical, thematic, rhythmic or melodic connection. If you've got something that fits the bill, please get in touch with me at mark at xdclimelight.com. Mark at xdclimelight.com. To kick us off, we have a song called Scissor Girl. And here is songwriter John Bicknell to explain what he had in mind. What do you call that noise? Hello, Mark, and hello, fellow XTC nuts. Um, I will be brief. Um, the title of this song is, is a very obvious reference to the song Scissor Man. Um, and I thought it would be fun to turn things around and write about being cut up in a slightly different way rather than having your bits cut off for your sins. 
Um, my band Drums and Wires UK, obvious XTC reference there, uh, recorded a full-length album in 2021 called Ups, Downs and Merry-Go-Rounds, which is chock-full of XTC-inspired compositions. Scissor Girl didn't make the album due to time restraints, but it is my intention to record it properly for a follow-up album by my other band, that's Fomato Effect, later this year. We've just released our debut album called Where Are The Angels? Um, the drum pattern, uh, talking of the influence in this, in this song, the drum pattern was inspired um, by the XTC song My Bird Performs from Nonsuch. The bass line is kind of a nod to Colin's superb fiddly work on the Mama album, uh, more of the acoustic album. The acoustic guitars also took inspiration from songs such as Love on a Farm Boy's Wages from the same album. So here it is in demo form. I hope people will enjoy the mashup from several different XTC albums. Uh, I'll, I'll keep an eye on the comments. Thanks for listening.
That was Scissor Girl by John Bicknell. Thanks very much for that, John. If you'd like to have your XTC-inspired song played on the podcast, please let me know at mark at xtclimelight.com. Now, let's give a big New Year thank you to the supporters on Patreon whose donations have kept the XTC podcast running for another year. They are all tremendous human beings. Very, very great thanks to them. If you haven't settled on a New Year's resolution yet, well, here's your answer. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher and decide whether you'd like to be a pink thing, a humble daisy, or a knight in shining karma and keep the podcast going. If it's the latter, I'll read out your name at the end of each episode. And if you keep meaning to buy a copy of What Do You Call That Noise, an XTC discovery book, and haven't got round to it, well, what are you waiting for? Head straight away to xtclimelight.com and order your copy. What do you call that noise? Right, on with the show. We've got a packed guest list this month, and I'm delighted to welcome them all. So let's give a big hello to each of them. First, it's Tony Mitchell. Hello, Tony. Hi. Tony was an editorial staffer on Sounds from 1975 to 1987 and went with XDC to Hamburg and Amsterdam for a feature that was published in January 1978 as... Well, as other XTC articles and reviews, he also went with them to Japan in 1979. After his glittering career as a music journalist, Tony became editor and art director at Skin 2 magazine and then editor-in-chief at online fetish magazine, thefetishistas.com. I'm very pleased I said that. I was convinced it was going to come out all slurry like I was drunk, but thefetishistas.com. Something I have a feeling we'll be hearing more about shortly. Uh, Tony, what was your earliest encounter with XTC or their music? Uh, Well, that's a good question. I was uh, looking at uh, my uh, old uh, writing writings in sounds which uh, uh, all look like they've been written by someone else I might say um, <laughs> those are the days and um, it might have been when I did a technical interview with Barry Andrews um, that might that was certainly one of the early ones uh, because I used to cover the musical instrument scene for sounds amongst other things and I would often be offered uh, people who didn't normally do interviews or who couldn't normally get interviews. And um, that that would have been one of the earliest ones, uh, Barry, the, the then keyboard player. But I think I might well have reviewed one of their singles when I did a singles um, review session. Uh, and I might have discovered them that way. And uh, I'm afraid my memory is not really clear on, on my very first experience. But those were, those were the early ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that gives us a good sense of of how early you were talking about, because that's pretty much as they were even, you know, just being signed, I suppose. Yes, yes. Thank you for that, Tony. Yeah, then we have Jill Fermanovsky. Hello, Jill. Hello. Hello, great to have you. Jill is the photographer who travelled to Hamburg with Tony in 1978, and uh, she also did a publicity session with XTC later that year. And you can see the photographs that she took, and very good they are too, in Swindon Works, XTC 1978, which was published by Hanging Around Books, and you can find that at hangingaroundbooks.com. Starting as the official photographer at the London rock venue, the Rainbow Theatre in 1972, Jill has gone on to photograph Led Zeppelin, The Rolling Stones, Madness, Debbie Harry, Pink Floyd, Oasis, Bob Dylan, Joy Division, Queen, Tom Waits, Chrissy Hine, The Clash, Bjork and Amy Winehouse. Basically, if, if they exist, you've taken them. That's It's an amazing list of people there. Um, Jill, did you um, even know of XTC before you went to, to Hamburg to, to photograph them? I'm not sure I did, actually. Um, I relied on Tony Mitchell, who, who knew an awful lot about everything, really. Um, I just want to big up here that I was 
one of the technical photographers for his technical page on sounds. And I think that's where I got my break from. Uh, so, Tony, I've, I wish to say online now, thank you very much for letting me photograph those amps and guitars and percussion instruments attached to various road crew, who I've, who, who, which is how I get into all my gigs. Um, and uh, XTC followed from that. And uh, I'm not sure. Uh, the only thing I'm thinking of is that album sleeve that Stormworth Augustine did, which was covered in writing. Was that Did that predate that or was that um, later? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's the second album, isn't it? Go to... That's the second one. Yeah, yeah. But um, certainly I went to Hamburg with them. Thank you for that, Jill. Now we come to Beverly Glick. Hello, Beverly. Hello. And older listeners will remember Beverly under her pseudonym of Betty Page, a name suggested to her, I believe, by Tony. Correct. It's a big love in this this whole session, isn't it? <laughs> it's a mutual appreciation society. All for Tony. <laughs> Bev is another big name in music journalism, and she joined Sounds in the late 1970s, initially as a secretary, and then, like, subtly and secretly as a staff writer, and wrote about XTC in New York in 1980. Um, she was the first journalist to interview Spandau Ballet, and the first to use the phrase New Romantic in print. She went on to edit Record Mirror and work as an editor and writer on several national newspapers. And these days, she works as a leadership communications coach and trainer. So same question to you, Bev. Um, when did you first come across XTC? I think it's almost certainly when I went to see them play with Tony. Could you rephrase that? He <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it all goes back to Tony. I So I became the secretary to the editor of Sounds in 1977, the illustrious late Alan Lewis. And as a result of that, I met Tony and then we started going out with each other. So we just went to all, you know, every gig together. So I'm pretty much certain that that would be, would have been my first encounter with XTC. And I remember, yes, he went off to Hamburg and then I was so jealous that he was going to Japan with them the year after. <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, I got my own back when I went to New York with him in 1980. So you've made events. That's fab. I did. Um, yeah, the, um, there's loads to talk about just in just what you said then. So I, I hope to come back to that again. <laughs> um, uh, but it doesn't stop there. Next, we have Paul Burgess. Hello, Paul. Hello. Paul grew up in Swindon and saw XTC many times at the Affair Club and elsewhere. And he was in a band called the Jelly Tots, who played at the Affair in 1978 and 1979. And uh, fact fans might care to know that the singer was Johnny Stevens, who went on to form Meat Beat Manifesto and Perennial Divide with Jack Dangers. And then a band called the Early Bathers. And the Jelly Tots used, used XTC's recording space in Swindon Town Hall. These days, Paul is a freelance designer, photographer and author and is soon to publish, I believe, Hardcore, which is a visual celebration of Pulp's sixth album, This Is Hardcore, co-designed with Louise Colborne. It features unseen photography, behind-the-scenes interviews and revealing visuals. Um, it sounds, Paul, that... You were aware of XTC from very, very early on then, is that right? Yeah, really early on. Um, I mean, I, I went to school, uh, uh, Andy and I have discovered we went to the same school at the same time. So I went to Penhill School and uh, Headland School in Swindon. And if you look at the map on Go To that comes with it, uh, you'll see there's a map of Swindon which features the school on there. Um, that's important because Colin Moulding's dad was the caretaker at Headland School. And um, the first time I ever heard 
XTC on record was on this. That's the 3D EP that's being uh, waved around there very proudly. Which Colin's dad gave me at school. He was very proud. He had advanced copies of this and used to give them out to people. Uh, And as you say, I saw them... I mean, it was just kind of run of the mill. You just went to see your local band at that time. And our local band, for me and Andy, was XTC. And they played pretty much every other week in this really small club called The Affair Club, which was run by Ian Reid, uh, XTC's manager. And in return for XTC playing in London uh, on the kind of punk scene, we would get ev- pretty much every London punk band would, I think it was Tuesday nights, Andy, something like that, Tuesday nights and Friday nights. It's a long time ago. Yeah, we'd get, you know, The Clash, The Stranglers, The yeah, the, the Buzzcocks adverts. So we were really lucky in, in, in return for them playing. So, um, yeah, I saw them lots of times and they were really exciting. Yeah, and again, I'll come back to that. Um, we'll go on to Andy Poulton now. Hello, Andy. Hi, Mark. As Paul has just said, you've... You were at Penton Hill and Headland School, and you were running the disco, I think, in Headland School, where you first came across 3DEP, much to the pleasure of the school caretaker, which is Colin Moulding's dad. And today, um, Andy specialises in search engine optimization and online marketing. So I trust he'll direct lots of traffic to this podcast. <laughs> um, so 3DEP was your starting point then, Andy, yeah? It was, but it, was the, the, it wasn't directly through the school club, which was called the Headlands Association. Like Paul, um, I went to Penhill first, then on to Headlands. And there was this Friday evening club called Headlands Association. And somehow I became the DJ, probably because I knew how a record player worked. And so I'd have to go into town, into Swindon. And I'm a Swindon lad, born and bred. Um, I had to go into town to buy the latest disco records, um, which was as boring as heck, but there we go. And there was a record store in, in town called Flashback run by a guy called Alan Williams. And I built up a good relationship with Alan because he would, he would stock the sort of music I liked, which was indie punk uh, and stuff like that. And whenever I'd go in, he'd always have kept something back to introduce to me. And I walked in and I, and I remember his absolute enthusiasm when he said, Andy, you're really going to love this. And he played 3D EP and he was right. I did and bought it. And he then said, and you know, you may not know this, but they're a Swindon band. And so I was a bit more hyped. And Kevin Wilkinson and I, who was my co-DJ, we'd, off, we'd, we'd always turn up at HA at least an hour before it was due to start for two reasons. One, I was just deadly worried that one day the equipment wouldn't work and we'd needed time to get it to work. So I wanted to make sure everything was working. But then it was an opportunity just for us to play our music as loud as we wanted to you know, through, you know, a hundred watt disco, disco amp rather than a, I don't know, half a watt wind up gramophone probably. And so I put 3D EP on and I looked up and the school caretaker um, was standing at the, standing at the door, just looking us up and down. And I thought, mm, that's just a bit weird because he'd never normally come and pay any attention to what we were doing. And as it finished, he just sauntered over to the little stage we were on and he just said, do you like that boys? And I said, yeah, absolutely. He went, my son's in that band. <laughs> and I kind of looked at him a bit askance as if to say, yeah, right, okay. And he went, give it and I'll get it signed for you. And I thought, I've just got this. Do I trust this man? And I kind of flipped it over and looked at the band members and it sort of went, Andy Partridge, Colin Moulding. That's Charles, that's Chaz Moulding. Okay, Frank, there you go. Um, so that was 1977. So... I can pin it down fairly accurately because um, that's something that's going to stay with me, you know, until I ain't here any longer, I guess. Yeah. 
great, great story. Um, Bev, I'm just thinking that uh, for people who are uh, not as long as in the truth as some of us <laughs> and um, maybe don't live uh, and don't come from the UK, they might not know about the music paper scene in in the UK. Could, could you give a quick summary of, of where sounds stood on the, la the landscape of pop music magazines? Well, it didn't really consider itself a pop music magazine, I don't think, really. It was a rock music paper, certainly in the late 70s. Um, I later went on to work for Record Mirror, which was definitely a, a pop music paper. So the thing about sounds in the late 70s is that it was the first with punk rock, like way before the NME covered it. Uh, but prior to that, had been known probably more for for for, gener for generate rock. Uh, but it was Alan Lewis that really made the choice to cover punk, as it happened in the, in the in '76. Um, and he was just always on the case with anything new that was coming up. And so, obviously, there was a huge explosion of of music that came out post punk, which is uh, when XTC came through. But sounds at that point in the in the triumvirate of music papers. So you had sounds, Melody Maker, and NME. NME was generally always the best-selling one. But sounds actually got very close to the sales of NME at one point, uh, and Melody Maker was kind of uh, come bringing up the rear. So that's where it sat at that time. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Jill, you you'd been photographing rock bands since at least 1972 uh, was there a sense that you got of the kind of bands that were coming up by the time that we're talking about 1977 1978 that there was something in the air that that we these days we mythologize did it seem particularly exciting at that time for you as a photographer um it did actually yes it did i mean it only lasted really 18 months punk not for Americans, they still say punk is going on now, but in a way, it just it was it was sort of nineteen seventy six as Bev described, which sounds covered, and um i I was in the thick of it because I was working with a load of prog bands managed by Miles Copeland, who was my uh, boyfriend at the time. And Malcolm McLaren moved into the office above him, and where he was trying to get press for all his Caravan, Camel, Climax Blues Band, Renaissance, these kind of prog bands and things that Tony and I were working on, on doing equipment things. Um, there was a film crew every day outside waiting for the Sex Pistols and Malcolm McLaren to do something. So Miles Copeland, who was very innovative as well as a manager and as a promoter, he he got a handle on that stuff and started uh, initially getting the Sex Pistols some gigs out of the UK because they couldn't get any in the UK. And then he started his own record label and managed uh, various artists, including his brother, Stuart Copeland, which became The Police and so on. And that was a very um, can-do period, really, 1977, 78, um, up to 79, because you had a lot of independent labels um, and... And um, bands like XTC and a whole bunch of others really all came up under, you know, through through the punk um, chasm that had opened up, and the prog bands dropped into the chasm. You know, they they ceased to have the importance. They were doing twenty four track studios and keyboards and you know moogs and all that, and the punks were three chords and make a, you know, make make a, make a single and uh, off you go. And Tony, was that, it's the same question to you. You've been there at Sounds since seventy five. Did you have to have a uh, uh, did you force yourself to have an about turn to 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 accept this uh, these horrible young spotty kids, or or, or did it natu did you naturally gravitate towards it? it? 
it was pretty organic, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I uh, certainly when I joined the paper, I was very much into sort of um, sort of musicianly uh, rock bluesy based uh, stuff. You know, I'd been a big fan of Jimi Hendrix back in the 60s. And um, then I transferred my sort of guitar worship to Johnny Winter um, in the 70s. And I was, when I joined Sounds, I, I say I was taken on as technical editor um, well, actually, the first title I had was Supplements Editor, but I didn't like that because it sounded too much like advertising. And uh, my my job was basically to create uh, musician-friendly uh, content um, because the people who'd started Sounds were both ex-melody maker uh, journalists, well, journalist and ad, ad guy, and uh, Melody Maker was the musician's uh, weekly paper at that time. It's where you had all the ads for musicians and all the rest of it. And my job was to um, make sounds a, a, a viable, you know, a feasible co competitor for Melody Makers uh, coverage in that area. So I was very much uh, initially involved with um, interviewing musicians, you know, I, I wasn't allowed near any of the sort of big names to begin with because because I was new and they weren't sure about me. But uh, um, they, I, I was doing that sort of as as Jill said, you know, there were sort of various prog rock people, and I I could uh, talk to people um, as a musician because I you know I had a mu a, a musician background myself. And that gave me a bit of an advantage because as soon as I, I, I was perceived to be speaking roughly the same language as them, um, it, it, it made it easier to, uh, to get people to open up. And um, I think, you know, really, I think it was the Sex Pistols that sort of changed it all for me. Um, and, uh, you know, I sort of, uh, I thought this is new and exciting. And not that long after that, um, with with the first trip to Japan with XTC and uh, discovering Yellow Magic Orchestra, who uh, were a massive influence on the electronic scene that's often, you know, not not uh, not remembered today. Um, you know, that was another another change. But um, I was definitely uh, up up for the sort of the the next thing after the very sort of basic punk stuff, which was you know new wave. And I mean Stuart Copeland. Uh, reviewed drums for me. You know, I, I I could get musicians to who who were articulate to review uh, instruments. Or you know, they got paid for it, and uh, so he and I became quite quite pally. And uh, you know, I knew Miles quite well through Jill and and through Stuart. And um, I I hope Jill won't mind me saying this, but Miles wasn't terribly popular with them um, with certain sectors of the uh, the weekly music press because of his family connections to the CIA so <laughs> if you could if you could look past that which I could even though I'm a bit of a lefty if you could look past that then you know you had um, you, you could have access to some very interesting people and that's how how you know things developed for me so so yeah it, it was organic it was organic and it was uh, XDC were definitely a very important um factor in my sort of conversion uh to new music for want of a better word uh, along with talking heads who um toured with them uh, or or with whom you know XDC toured on on the tour that we're talking about 
Yeah, well, should we talk more about that tour? We, at that point, so we're talking, nine, it was certainly released, the, the, it was published in 1978, just as uh, white music was 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 being released. Uh, so yeah. I presume you were in uh, Hamburg and Amsterdam with them, uh, either, was it the end of 77 or, the, or, or was it the start of 78 that you were doing that? I and, think it and, was... Um, I well, might have the date. I mean, I've, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the article now. Here, I've got a printout of it, and um, it, it it reads like it was published very shortly after um, I, I went there. So I think it might. have... I don't know if yeah. Jill remembers it more I, precisely. I probably well, do have it somewhere, but I, at the moment it's just captioned as 1978, and it was yeah. winter. It was yes. cold. Yes, mm-hmm. ja- January '78 is when the article was produced i i think the i think the trip was in earlier january 78 yes, not the I ideal probably... time to be going <laughs> yeah. on the road i suppose really but yeah. everybody looks a bit frozen in the pictures yeah well i know when um alan jones was talking about uh, for, on the podcast and at the recent xdc convention he was talking about his uh you know trips with xdc or various bands at which point he would uh you know do the the, the the trip but and it pretty much on the plane on the way back he'd be writing the articles up it was very very fast in those days wasn't it yeah yes it was yes it was i'm <laughs> not going to deny that <laughs> and 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 for 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 so that point in your career was that unusual for you to be going uh, abroad because you know when when you read back those articles both that one and the one that you did in in uh to japan in 1979 it's almost like a travelogue you you can tell that you're yes. excited about being in these mysterious places that you hadn't been to before oh absolutely i mean i i think i might have been to uh, i certainly hadn't been to japan before but um you know i, tra- I certainly traveled to europe but uh, not as a journalist well not sorry not as a music journalist and i think i think the xtc uh, that European tour, that might have been my first sort of major on-the-road piece for sounds because, as I say, I, you know, it wasn't at that time, it wasn't my primary job to write features. I got a share, um, but, uh, you know, that that was possibly my breakthrough feature. <laughs> Feels like that when I read it anyway. Yeah, there's a real energy there that, that comes across there. Um, Paul, I don't know whether you want to ask questions of Jill from your own um, background in design and photography, but I'm I'm just thinking, Jill, that one of the challenges of taking pictures of, of bands is they tend to be, you know, four blokes looking quite similar to any other four blokes and, and um, to, you know, to make them distinctive and to make... I used to work for a magazine where we would... Okay, it was an arts magazine and we would put bands on the cover, you know, every 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 so often. And it was very difficult to get a picture that wasn't looking like all the other pictures of, of, of four bands. Do you have a way of breaking through that uh, that challenge? It's never bothered me particularly where the pictures are going. I mean, I'm not... Um, but when you go some, when you go to another country with a band, especially at that time when there wasn't sort of mobile phones and internet stuff, you became quite intimate very quickly with them and they were very obliging and wanted to do these. We had Al Clark with us, who was the Virgin Records um, our PR man, who was really excellent as well, wasn't he, Tony? Oh, absolutely. And, um, yeah. And also, you know, then you find locations because you've got a very good eye for, I mean, the cover of sounds, um, which I've got here, was um, it looks like they're standing next to a giant pendulum. I don't know where we found that, but we did. And they got on the cover probably, you know, because there was a kind of cool picture. 
It looks like some sort of, um, I don't know if you can put that on your website when you do your podcast, but the cover of sounds for that issue is really, really amazing, actually. Um, this It looks like a, a metronome, sorry, a metronome. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. With an eye on it. And then there were other pictures with sort of a large chain and, you know, and then the streets were all cobbled with tram lines in them. I mean, all of these details, um, plus the kind of intimacy that you've now got with the band, um, played a part. And then in the club itself, um, punk was starting, you know, it was a bit late, but it was happening in Munich then. So you had punks with sort of homemade safety pinned items that they'd made. And then the talking heads who, who you see a great deal in, in, in the pictures in the, in the book. Um, you know, you've got David Byrne laughing and Tina, I think Andy Partridge has got Tina's foot in his mouth. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it, looks, it looks like a proper rock and roll knees up and you wouldn't associate that with the talking heads who were quite serious, you know. So that's the sort of thing that happened when you went to a foreign country, especially if they didn't speak English, with, English-speaking bands, and you bring your marmite with you and a copy of the music press or something, and uh, you know you were best friends um, within a couple of hours, and you know it didn't really matter uh, where you were. You know you'd get the pictures one way or the other. Yeah, uh, Paul, if, uh, chip in there because does that uh, c- correlate with your experience photographing pulp as an example? Exactly. Um, I mean, I have to say from the beginning, you know, I'm a huge fan of Jill's photographs. Um, Thank you. I just think they're fantastic. And um, growing up reading Sounds Enemy, uh, particularly, um, I was never a big fan of Melody Maker. Uh, that was all the kind of slightly boring old-fashioned magazine uh, newspaper. Um, no, there, there were kind of four photographers that, who, in my opinion, were were, were the best: uh, Jill, uh, Kevin Cummings, Anton Corbin, and Peter Anderson. And um, Peter Anderson, when I moved to London in 1981 to go to Camberwell Art School, and um, I got a job with Peter Anderson as his darkroom assistant, and um, I used to help him on lots of photo shoots. Cool. Um, And I'd never taken photographs of bands ever before. When I went to see XTC playing the Affair Club, no one had cameras. You know, obviously it's a pre-digital, pre-mobile phone era. I had a little plastic Kodak Instamatic, probably like a lot of you had in those days, but I never thought to take it to, to see take it to 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 um photograph bands i don't know why just just never did but um through working with peter anderson who had a very i'm jill i'm sure you're aware of peter's photographs mm. um but peter's got a particularly distinctive way of taking shots he would often just photograph the top halves of people's heads or the sides of their heads or he had a very kind of odd way of looking at the world which had made a big impression on me but the best thing was best thing that peter ever said to me um when i was watching him take photographs was um don't get bogged down with technology just work really quickly it's you know it's about seizing the moment you know um he never used a flash uh, everything was just really fast really diy um and i just started photographing my bands myself after that and just by asking them so that the, the way it happened with pulp is um i used to go and see them play live in the early early 90s mid 90s and love the rapport that jarvis had with the audience to me, it was really similar with the rapport that punk bands had with their audience, um, and I just I, I found out who who their manager their manager is um, someone called Jeanette Lee, mm. who's been Public Image Limited with John Lydon, uh, and, and ran Rough Trade Rough Trade Management with Jeff Travis, uh, who, for those of you who don't know, set up uh, Rough Trade Records, um, 
and I just asked Jeanette if I could do artwork for them. And she said, well, I'll, I'll go and ask Jarvis, you know, send some stuff in, uh, leave it with me. I didn't hear anything for a number of weeks. And I rang up to check with Jeanette and she said, oh, Jarvis has just seen this. Because I sent a box in with loads of examples of my work. And she said, um, oh, he really, you know, he really likes some of the things in the box. Come in and have a meeting. Uh, so I started doing uh, various bits of artwork for Pulp, mostly things like tour T-shirts, tour programs, uh, that kind of thing. And then I noticed that no one was photographing them. You know, every time they DJed at a party or made a music video, there was no one there photographing or documenting anything. So I just asked if I could start doing that. And I did it for six years. And, and the idea was to do a, a book of it. At the time, we were going to do a book with uh, Edward Booth Clibborn in London. Um, but just as we were about to go to print or um, pulp split up uh, in 2001, I think it was, and the book was put on hold. So... I've sat on these photographs for about 25 years and I, I, I started um, uh, with, with my partner, Louise Colborn. Uh, we started working out uh, layouts for a book um, and uh, this book is going to be published next year. Little did we know that Pulp have just announced that they're reforming and playing <laughs> um, uh, more gigs next, next year, which is uh, just a complete coincidence. So they're, they're headlining Latitude, um, they're doing a big... Thing in Finsbury Park next summer. So it's just a happy coincidence um, uh, because next year is 25 years since the album This Is Hardcore. So the, the book's called Hardcore um, and it's it revolves mostly around photographs I took on video shoots from that album. So, um, but my approach is nothing like, you know, I'm not a, I would, I would never call myself a professional photographer. I'm just someone who picked up a camera and had a go which is what, what I've applied for my whole life, which has come from punk, from that punk attitude and punk aesthetic, you know. Although, didn't I read, Jill? That, that, like like that, a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> Jill, did you not just have two weeks' worth of training before you threw yourself into the professional game? Is is Did you have a sort of punk attitude yourself to that? More like four days, actually. Four days. <laughs> <laughs> so was it, did, 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 it, it do you recognise in, in your approach a sort of punk approach, you know, let's, let's hear a three chords, let's just do the show here? definitely yeah definitely I mean they couldn't play and I couldn't take pictures properly they couldn't play properly but we, we both we they took they played and made records and I took pictures and um you know and did artwork on the on the you know you do it on the kitchen table with cow garments sticks and lettering on there I mean I did a graphic design degree which I should be ashamed of really for the state of my graphics but um it was okay for punk you know it worked for punk it was all right mm-hmm so, yes, I mean, I think it's that spirit of can-do and a little bit, obviously, of the arrogance, which which was then, you know, um, picked up upon. You know, when I worked with Oasis, I was sort of pick up a punk ethic from them as well, actually. You know, kind of a strutting kind of, um, you know, uh, energy. And, um, you know, a lack of musicianship, I suppose you could say. Yeah, yeah. Um, strangely enough, I'm also Pink Floyd's photographer, which is hilarious because in 1976 and 77, I was mainly working with Pink Floyd. I was doing punk and Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> you got the full range there. And, and, and Tony, from your point of view, that the sort of energy that, that the music around at the time is reflected in not just your writing but and, and Bev's writing as well. You know, the, 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 the energy of the music at the time um, is reflected in the writing, isn't it? Was, were you doing that consciously? Was it, 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 or was it just um, the mood of the times? It, well, I think it was, I think it was the zeitgeist. Um, you know, when people talk about 
the things that aren't uh, acceptable to say now. And I look at some of my writing and I, I, I can see some borderline casual racism in it that, you know, was perfectly acceptable uh, in the music press in those days. But, you you know, I wouldn't do it now, uh, not intentionally anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, neither would anyone else, I don't think. So, I mean, there was, there was definitely a feeling about that, you know, there was something something new and exciting in the air uh and if i may uh just refer back to that that thing about sort of being the musical instrument uh, writer one of the things that was happening at that time was that um uh, musical instruments made in japan and its various satellites were becoming better and better quality. They used to be uh, sort of knocked as, as, as cheap and nasty copies, but the quality was increasing all the time. And I was getting a lot of this kind of stuff to review from the companies that um, uh, distributed uh, sold Japanese uh, brands in the UK. And these were the instruments that the punks could afford you know, so I was reviewing stuff and, and and sort of telling a lot of these musicians, well, look, you know, you can't afford a Gibson Les Paul or a Fender Stratocaster, but this copy's almost as good and it's a third of the price or something. You know, so I, I, I felt that I, I kind of, you know, helped them along the, the way a little bit with uh, with those kind of reviews because it meant that they, they weren't prevented from being in bands by the fact that they didn't have expensive gear, which is what it was like when I tried to join bands in the early 70s after I left university. If you didn't have a uh, a Gibson or a Fender and a Marshall stack, you couldn't even get an audition with anybody, you know. So let's we talk more about that trip then to to, to Hamburg and Amsterdam. Um, we've already said that it was a, a, a novel experience for you to be going with the band on, on the road. How did you yeah. find the band as just as human beings, you know, people to write about? Well, um, re- just having just reread my article recently, I I uh, I note that um, I said that they hadn't previously had a particularly uh, pleasant set of experiences with journalists. And I think when they realised, you know, that I was as mad as they were, that, you know, I I was kind of, I was fairly quickly accepted as a family member. You know, I mean, I I notice in the the, uh, Hamburg article that there's a photo by Jill in which you can see me um, looking a bit like a... um, well, some kind of a a, a villain in my uh, in my reactor light uh, shades, my Easy Rider shades. That I well, they're not shades; they were actually uh, reactor lights that had stuck on dark. So, <laughs> so I was given the nickname Tony Chang because I looked like someone from you know um, from one of those B movies or, or or you know a porno basically that wears that wears those kind of glasses and uh, you know that. That was the level that it that it functioned on. That you know, we 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 traded insults, and they are all incredibly bright and incredibly witty, um, and uh, you know, they they were just perfect for the kind of thing that I wanted to do because I I you know I wanted to present them as as a fun band, very serious about their music, but you know, um, very witty and entertaining and, and intelligent and off the wall in other ways, you know, not not like any other band that I'd met at that time. 
and um, and you know they certainly impressed talking heads and you know i think that was the first time i'd been in the same room as talking heads uh, or at least in the, in the same backstage area and um, you know they were they were very different people um when they were, weren't on camera as it were you know when they weren't in front of the public they they were much more relaxed and um and uh, they 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 loved mm-hmm. hanging out with XTC because they said that XTC made them laugh, you know. And I, if, if you had the privilege of hanging out with XTC and you didn't laugh, then there was something badly wrong with you. you know? <laughs> and that, I mean, what comes across uh, as well is that it's, uh, I think probably in later years, uh, it tends to be all about Andy and Andy Partridge because he is, you know, probably the funniest person I've ever, I've ever come across. But what really comes across in, in, in your articles is um, that it's the, the band were funny. Barry Andrews was funny. Terry Chambers was yeah. funny. You know, the, it was the whole the whole package. Yeah, there was a real group humour. Um, they, they were very they were very aware of, uh, of popular culture. Um, you know, and and uh, they would be constantly bringing up stuff um, that you, that refer to some television show or or, or whatever. Um, and you know, they and they also had the sort of standard musician humor. I mean, all bands have a certain element of musician humor. You know, that sort of starts out with what what do you call a guy that hangs out with musicians? It's a drummer. You know, <laughs> um, one of the oldest muso jokes in the business, I believe. Um, but I mean, they they just took it a lot further, and they were just constantly inventive. And um, it, as far as I know, it was all done on beer. Um, there was never any evidence of drugs. In fact, they said they would have been quite happy to take drugs if anybody given them to them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but even that, even that, is a typical XDC sort of response to the question. It isn't absolutely it? <laughs> is. Yeah, absolutely is. Yeah, yeah. You never knew what quite what they were going to say you just knew it was a fair chance it would be off the wall and and probably have you you know collapsing in fits of giggles Mm -hmm. and you do actually in the middle of that article there's a whole completely surreal verbatim dialogue that (laughs) sort of makes no sense whatsoever gradually as it goes on it sort of starts to make a bit more sense but it captures something of the mad drunken night that you were having I suppose Yes, yes, it did. And I mean, I was happy to make myself, um, you know, the sort of butt of the joke where necessary, um, because it was all, you know, it was it was what you signed up for, basically, I, I thought. And um, that article also included a lot of um, um, Im- imaginary phrases from an imaginary XTC European uh, phrase book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> things like, uh, please call a doctor, um, any groin my groin is trapped in the elevator please call a doctor my <laughs> groin is trapped in the elevator that you know and, and they would just sit there and just make these up you know you could sit around a table and they would just make them up you know and i i so i'd never met a band that was so sort of you know um, versatile in that in that respect yeah and i think poss- possibly as a consequence of that you don't actually talk very much about the music <laughs> you talk about the experience you talk about being there or whatever but there is a lovely phrase that you have which i think obviously to me is very perceptive uh, you, you say i was left in no doubt about their musical potential in a word it's vast so interesting yeah. right at the start of their career they've got 3 dp and and this new lp coming out you you saw something in them that that to your mind made them stand out yes musically. yes and it and it was that they brought musicianship um 
amongst other things, they brought musicianship back to the mix after it had been sort of rejected by punk. I mean, the thing about punk was it had to clear out, you know, all that, all that sort of, um, you know, corporate rock uh, stuff that we were that we were having foisted upon us. And part of that was a, re a complete rejection of musicianship, even though a very famous um, uh, session guitarist actually played on the first uh, Sex Pistols single. Um, I don't know if I can name him because I don't know if he's ever been publicly named, but it was a well-known factor um, in um, uh, our circles. But, um, you know, so so there was a certain hypocrisy um, in the punk movement about that but you could argue that it was necessary um you know to have the clear out that you needed and to have a fresh start and so xdc and other other bands from you know from that era like talking heads for example um they brought musicianship back but it but it was musicianship from this new sort of perspective and uh, it, it was clear to me that a band like XTC could go further than a band that was limited by by its sort of punk ethos. You know, not 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 I'm knocking the punk ethos. It's just that it was limited, and it did a good job. Um, but it one of the most important jobs it did for me was that it, it you know it opened up music again um, to people with more well a, a greater breadth of talent, shall we say. You know, not just not just a sort of nihilism or whatever you want to call it that's behind punk. My view of the punk ethos is simply that it's a can-do attitude, and I think punk is very much an attitude. It's not a genre at all. It's just wanting to jump in. I mean, I I ended up in bands, and I I had no no musical ability at all to start off with, but it was just the fact that I wanted to give it a go. From the earliest days, I can remember taking stuff apart because I wanted to find out how things work. My dad, unfortunately, was bore the brunt of this because I'd typically walk up to him with a handful of components and go, Dad, it came apart in my hands. And he went, no, it came apart with a screwdriver. Um, but, it, but I think that is that thing about a can-do attitude. And bands that call themselves punk these days tend to, and maybe this is just an old man talking, tend to think of it as a genre. And my view is it's never been a genre. It's always been from inside your head. It's always been an attitude, a, a let's get there and make some music thing. Does that chime with you, Bev? Because I'm thinking you're the, the point at which you were writing, I mean, you can just sort of list the names of the bands um, th who are very, very musically accomplished. Ian during the Blockheads, you know, tremendous musicians. I don't know, The Beat, uh, probably The Clash, you know, all of, all, all of these uh, bands that when you actually look at them, uh, they knew what they were doing, uh, and I, I sort of grew up uh, with that belief that all punk music was played, or all music of that era was played with three chords. But isn't actually true, is it? No, it's probably not quite as uh, quite as simple as that, is it? But uh, um, I hear what you're saying about that, Andy. I, I do think it is is an attitude, uh, and even though I, I wasn't a punk at the time uh, in nineteen in the mid mid to late seventies. I, I really loved the Sex Pistols and I think what I benefited from personally was the attitude and the attitude that permeated the music press at that time, which is very much that anyone can get up and give it a go if you've got the passion, if you've got the enthusiasm for the music. 
and I'd never done any journalistic training. I was, as you, as you know, I was a secretary. And it was only when I started going out to see bands with Tony that uh, I started to realise that I had a voice. And uh, I mean, not only did Tony encourage that in me, but also I think that just the, the punk ethos that so permeated certainly sounds at that time uh, opened that door for me to make that leap from secretary to writer. So, and I still feel I carry that with me because all through my career, I've never really been qualified to do anything <laughs> that I've been actually in, ended up doing. So I feel I still carry that energy with me. It's making me realise as well because I I set up the XDC fanzine in 1982, so a few years after that we're talking about. But it was very much the, the the fanzine spirit was very much inheriting that same spirit that you're talking about. It was either you joined the band or you set up a fanzine. But um, now I'm thinking about it, it was people like like you, Tony, and you, Bev, who I was technically rebelling against because this was the the voice of the kids. But it's funny to hear that you you yourself were going through the same journey <laughs> because sound yeah. was also the the establishment, wasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I was in a band as well at that time. And um, just as, as Tony started getting into XTC, I was still singing with a band. And I'm pretty sure Tony can probably correct me on this, that at one point I, I, I played a set with my band at a pub in North London, and then we went to see the end of XTC's set. And didn't I at some point get up, get up on stage and sing backing vocals with them? I think you might have done, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I also played with them once, uh, play, yes. played guitar with them in, I think it was Southampton, um, which was um, which was fun. I can't remember what song it was, but um, I it, I had a good time. Although I disgraced myself by not realising that I should put my guitar on the guitar stand that had been provided for me. You know, being being essentially a sort of at best a semi pro musician, um, we didn't in the bands I played in. We we just leaned our guitars against the amps. We didn't have the luxury of these professional stands. So uh, I was, of course, mocked for that. But uh, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, um, I think I was reasonably accepted. <laughs> they, I will say they, they were much kinder to me than they were to Tony. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But I mean, once once you once you learned the humour, once you realised that, you know, it was give and take, you, you could have a lot of fun with them. You, yeah, they probably were kinder to you. I mean, uh, I, it's your little uh, your observation there is, is is reminding me of that beautiful remark in your J Japan piece, Tony, where you say that um, Dave Gregory insisted on tuning his guitar for the photo shoot. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah, um, it's uh, a very yes. Dave Gregory sort of thing to, to to do. I want to know more about that Southampton gig. How did you how did you end up on stage with them? Oh, I think they invited me. I think it was sort of planned in advance because uh, I had my own guitar with me. Um, so, so it, it must have been something that they that 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 we decided between us should be done. I sat in on a, a local radio interview with them as well, which was quite funny. I mean, I don't I don't think I got to say anything very much, uh, not with you know not with them in, in the studio um in in fine form as they were but um uh southampton was also where i went to university so uh it wasn't uh, i don't think the gig was at the university i i kind of have a memory of the of the stage but not not the building that it was in funnily enough um 
but you know so it was like a sort of a, a weird homecoming for me as well because I played in bands um a while at university and um when I left with my my engineering degree I, and to come up to London I, I just wanted to carry on playing in bands but as I say I didn't have the right equipment so <laughs> I had to get a proper job instead for a while anyway um yeah so um Sorry, what was the question? <laughs> oh, I can't, I can't, I forgot what the question was. Well, just like you're there as a journalist and the next minute you're in the band, it seems a bit... Oh, yeah. Um, well, yes, but you see, I mean, by, I think this was after the Japanese trip and by by then, you know, I, I mean, as I say, part, part of the, the reason that I was accepted by them was was that I was a player. There was, there was no doubt about that. And that was not, you know, that was not a uh, that was not a technique that I applied to get interviews. It was just part of my makeup. So you know, I would I could ask questions. And I, by the way, I noticed that on your uh, uh, on your uh, your site, there's one of the things, um, one of the topics was Andy um, uh, d- explaining the chords to Rhodes Girdle, Girdle the Globe. <laughs> yeah, well, he did that to me with me, I should say, um, in in his hotel room in the Sunroot Hotel in Tokyo, which was the first hotel we all stayed in when we got there, where Colin got very upset because they didn't serve egg and chips. <laughs> yeah, ain't you got anything normal like egg and chips, he said, you know. <laughs> which they didn't have, funnily enough, you know. What do you call that noise? Well, 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 that was good, and there's more good stuff to come. In next month's episode, you can hear the rest of this conversation, and here's a taste of what's in store. I mean, there were some exceptions, of course, and I would put XTC in that category. They knew instinctively what made a great quote. I mean, you really didn't have to try very hard to get a good piece out of them. I don't think a lot of their music is dated. They were kind of like the New York Dolls meets Bebop Deluxe meets... Uh, dub reggae. They've maintained um, their integrity, their musical integrity, and um, and and are still rooted in what started them off in the first place. In the minibus on the way to Hamburg for that Talking Heads and XTC gig, Andy produced this um, magazine. He bought a rubber fetish magazine, which was just pictures. Cockerel masks were quite frequently mentioned, uh, I seem to recall, uh, on that trip. Thanks very much to Tony Mitchell, Jill Fermanovsky, Beverly Glick, Paul Burgess and Andy Poulton for such a fascinating chat. And as I say, more of that to come. And thank you once again to everyone who has supported the podcast on Patreon, who you can join at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. Thanks in particular to the following Nights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, John Bicknell, Kevin Burt, Lorenzo Chachi, Kale Corbett, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Jeff Farris, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Stephen Hope, Alan Hughes, Marek Krauss, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlaw, Dennis LeCourier, Liz Lynch, Murray Meikle, Yusuf Murrah, Karen Neal, Amy Parkinson, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slato, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, Nigel Waller and Martin Whitley. Great to have you all on board. I'll be back next month with part two of our white music conversation. So I'll see you then. 